Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to thank all my subscribers and listeners that dedicate a little bit of time just to hear what I got to say. Thank you so much, but the struggle is real and it continues. Please spread awareness and do your part by making sure that you are subscribed and liking each of the episodes that you listen to. Share my episodes and, and spread awareness of my channel and what it is that I'm doing. These things, these little things right here is what helps me grow and helps sponsorship come my way as I am a struggling ex-con. I appreciate the support, the love, and thank you so much for tuning in. More to come. This episode has been brought to you by our friends over at CMB Law. If you find yourself in a tight spot and you need an attorney to trust, call Courtney over at CMB Law, 941 747 44 or 941-725-9457. You can also visit her site at cmbjustice.com. cmbjustice.com. Again, that's Courtney at CMB Law. Tell them that Thomas Free Me sent you from the Thomas Free Me podcast show. Happy New Year's, man. Happy New Year to you, sir. 2022. That it is. That it is. Let's make this a great year. It's an even year. I definitely like to get back into the even years. I don't like odd years. Yeah. Well, last year wasn't all that great, but I think it's going to turn out all right in the end. No question. No question. So here we are. We're getting into uh, one of the the most important amendments, the First Amendment here on New Year's Eve as we start off a, a new year. Um, with everything going on, censorship, uh, you know, YouTube pulling my monetization. Um, this is this is a very very important topic that we're getting ready to the to discuss today. Right. How would you like to to broach the subject tonight? Well, I'd like to first point out that there are basically two parts within the Constitution. Um, there's 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 three, but. There's two, and that, that includes the original Constitution, the actual body. That's Article 1 through Article 6. Within that, that defines the roles of government. You know, we've already been through that, that, that uh, each one of the government and the divisions of power are all sealed within those. But within Article 4, it has a uh, clause that, um, that identifies the privileges and immunities of United States citizens as well. And this kind of correlates with the amendments itself. So when you're looking at, uh, at building a case due to the deprivation of a right, what you would need to do first off is you need to, as I said before, duties always, or rights always derive from those duties to act. So when you look at the duties, you first have to establish, anytime you want to say that you've been de deprived of a right, you first have to establish that someone else had a duty to act. And you do that by going into the body of the Constitution and identifying where the actual deprivation occurred. In most cases, it's going to be the, the judicial branch because Article 6 says that, uh, that the judges, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any states contrary notwithstanding. So the citizens of the United States, we have the right to due process of the law because the judges in every state have the duty to ensure that those rights are provided. So within Article 4, Section 2, it says, the citizens in each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities as the citizens in the several states. So what that means is that we want to have equality 
and equal rights and equal application of law among the entire United States. So no matter where you choose to reside within the United States, we want to, a United States citizen to be treated the same. So any right that's secured by the Constitution of the United States and is given to a United States citizen in one state cannot be deprived of that right within another state. And that's what Article 4 is actually doing. Now, um, now the, the next step is, is that then once you've established someone else had a duty to act, then you'll go into the actual Bill of Rights and you'll identify, you know, the right that's been deprived. So if you've been, if you've had your right to speak, uh, be, be uh, uh, hindered or obstructed by, uh, by a courtroom, for, for instance, then you would establish first that the judge had the duty to permit you to speak freely, truly, and, and fully um, uh, to any matter pending before the court. And then you would go to the First Amendment and identify the fact that you have the freedom to speak. And then, of course, then you would go to the 14th Amendment and you would establish that this judge was operating under the color of law and therefore thereby binding the state to the, uh, to the uh, act of deprivation. So that's really important. Now, there's one other thing that I want to say, and that is, and I don't think I made this clear, but there's two different, two different things. There's a civil liberty and there's a civil right. Now, a civil liberty are those, are those rights or those freedoms that are so imperative to the social structure uh, and to the individual um, autonomy and, and independence that we have actually established them and written them and enumerated them within the actual Constitution of the United States. So any right that's identified within the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, those are called civil liberties. Those are not called civil rights. Those are civil liberties. And what the intent was, was to raise those particular freedoms or those rights above any sort of political contemplation. We didn't want them to be up for, up for argument. So we didn't want the freedom of speech to ever be infringed whatsoever. So we've identified it written it as, a, as an imperative right within the Bill of Rights, and therefore it is not to be infringed by anyone, not government or, um, or, or citizens. So, um, so we have those, those rights, those are civil liberties that are enumerated there. Now, a civil right is a little bit different. A civil right is actually something that we as Americans, um, we come together and we want to ensure that every single United States citizen is given this right, and therefore we establish those separately. And what we do is, is as uh, John Locke said, he said, that we gain civil rights as a result of accepting the obligation to enforce the rights of others or protect the rights of others. So as we choose to ensure that we ourselves are entitled to the right to vote, then we must accept the obligation to ensure that everyone has the right to vote. So for instance, a civil liberty is the freedom of speech. A right to vote is a civil right. Those are two separate things. Civil, the right to vote was in separate, uh, separate amendments outside of the, the first 10. So any one of these rights that we're about to go over, any one of them are, are known as a fundamental constitutional right. So when you deal with a fundamental constitutional right, um, they have such importance that we don't want them to be deprived for any, any particular reason. So there's an increased uh, uh, stipulation as to, as to whether or not they could be deprived. So there's different types of judicial, uh, judicial tests. So the lowest test would be the discretionary test. That would be just some judge saying, I have the discretion to be able to take this right away from you. We don't want fundamental constitutional rights to be at discretion. So we've actually required that, that they have a much higher judicial test, which is called the, um, the um, um, this strict scrutiny test or the, or the, um, um, or the state, uh, state subjection test. Anyway, so in order for a fundamental constitutional right to be taken away, they have to pass this higher level of scrutiny. And, and that is that the state has to submit to another organization, another body, uh, uh, justification as to why they have to uh, infringe on this right, why they have to take it away in order to do whatever it is that they need to do. Anytime that a law is applied to strict scrutiny, 
most of the times it will not pass. You know, there's no reason why there's no reason why the state of Washington would choose to deprive me of my fundamental constitutional right of an indictment by a grand jury, other than the fact that they just don't want to have to follow that that law. There's other other they can do that. It's not there's not going to be any sort of absolute you know requirement to take that away in in order for them to perform the, their their duties in office or business. So, um, so that derives from a, a specific case called Caroline Products. You know, I think we've all heard of that strict scrutiny. Um, so. In order to deprive any person of a fundamental constitutional right, you actually have to go through strict scrutiny. It has to have a higher level of, of scrutiny applied to it. Now, there's other rights that are taken away that are not fundamental, and those don't have to have such a high level of, of, uh, of judicial test. But any fundamental constitutional right by law has to pass strict scrutiny. So um, there are some rights that are not included in here, and I'm going to try to remember to go through them, You know, such as the right to uh, uh, intimate association. That would be the right to be able to have familial relationships, you have the right to be a, a father, you have the right to be a son, you have the right to, to have those intimate familial relationships without an interference infringement by government. So that is not actually written within the Constitution, but it has been found to be um, so within, uh, uh, within or by the Supreme Court of the United States. So, um, so again, we have this, this portion of the Constitution that, that is in Article 1 through Article 6, which are all the duties. They're duties of the government that identify what they have to do. And one of those is within um, Article 4 that says that the citizens in each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities as the citizens in the several states. So we do have the right here in the state of Washington or here in the state of, of, of New York, the same rights as anyone else. And um, I think that a great example would be, um, I, believe it was, uh, I believe it was McDonald, but it was a couple of years back. It was a, a, a couple um, a gay couple that ended up getting married and they moved to Ohio and Ohio was not accepting their marriage. And so they sued for uh, for their right to be married. And of course, the Supreme Court came out and said, no, if you have that right to, to be married in, in New York, then you have that same right within um, within Ohio. They can't deprive you of that right. So, you know, we need to remember that the point of the Constitution is to provide unity, is to provide equality and harmony among all of the, the regional governments. So we can't be deprived of one right within one state and not uh, and not in another or, or that we're given in another. Um, so uh, so we want to just remember that the first part of the Constitution is for the is for the duties of government. The next part is the first 10 amendments. That's going to be the actual rights that are called out where they would be deprived. And then we will we you always need to tie it together through the 14th Amendment, how the state deprived you of a specific right. And that would be how you'd build your case in any sort of civil rights case. That, that would be the, the way that you would do it. Um, so one last thing. When I say that, that rights always derive from another's duty to act, people have been asking me why that is. Well, so the Constitution of the United States, the actual body of the Constitution, it was signed or it was, it was ratified on, um, I believe, uh, September 18th of, of 1787, or seven, September 17th of 1787. So it was signed on that day. and. Uh, that was first. That came first. So all the duties came before. Then in 1791, December 15th to 1791, we ratified the Bill of Rights. So the duty, of course, comes before the right. Okay. They already established the duty before the rights came along. Now, another reason why that's so is because when a judge takes an oath to enter into office, right, they always have to take an, take an oath in order to enter into their office. That oath is that they will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, okay? And then within the Constitution, it says that the judges, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by anything in the Constitution or laws of any states contrary notwithstanding. So when you enter in, into an oath, what you're doing is you're promising 
Well, it, it's entering into a contract. You're entering a contract with the people, and that contract is promising to perform something at a later date. So if you promise to perform something at a later date, what you're promising to perform is whatever the Constitution says. So at, at, when I am arrested, for instance, and I'm brought before that judge, my right to the indictment by a grand jury, my right to the jury trial, that comes well after the promise was made. The judge enters into office, makes the promise, and then later on, I have this right that comes, that comes before me. So in order for the judge to enter into a plea bargain, for instance, with me, he would have to violate his right or he'd have to breach his contract that was originally established through the promise. And then in order to enter into the second contract with me, saying that I'm guilty, which means that the duty does, in fact, come before the right. My right came long after he, he, entered, his, he entered into office and, and I established his duty. So we just want to make sure that, that that's clear, that, that the rights always derive from those duty to act. Where there is no duty, there cannot be a right. So we first need to establish the duty before we go. Okay. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I, I don't see how anybody could argue that. You know, it's, it, it completely makes sense to me. Um, shall I go into the First Amendment? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. First Amendment. So before I read this now, again, when they wrote the preamble and, and they're writing these, like, how was that that structure? Were they sitting in a room all together? Was I mean, what was what was going on at that time? Do you know? Well, I, I can't say, but um, but I, I, I'm going to I'm going to assume that they were all together. You know, I mean, uh, I know that I know that the authors and the writers were were going off on their own, but they were coming together and they were reading it. They were making sure that every word was exactly what they wanted it to be. So, uh, no, I think that these guys worked. I think they worked very, very hard on this on this document. I think that, you know, other than some fairly significant mistakes that we've already identified, mm -hmm. um, I think that this is a this is a perfect document. I think that, that if we can eliminate the particular laws that does not conform with egalitarianism, which is that they identified a group of people that were not that were not equal, if we can eliminate that, knowing that it is not applicable to all all persons, therefore it violates the the principles of egalitarianism. Therefore, it, it violates the principles of constitutionalism. Then I think that this could be a a perfect document. But we need to make sure that any laws that we create are going to be equal and, and just. So. Uh, I, I'm going to assume that, that they, they were very, very particular about each and every single word that went into this. And, um, and I think you can see that. So another thing here, these, these are very, very simple. They're not complicated. You know, one of the most important things about law is that it has to be understood. You know, there's three parts of any crime. There's corpus delecti, which is the body of the crime. There's actus reus, which is the actual action that occurred. And then there's mens re. Mens re is a guilty mind. You have to have a guilty mind in order to have a, a, a crime occur. And, you know, the problem is, is if you don't understand the laws, then how can you possibly have mens rea? How can you possibly have a guilty mind if, if the laws are so complicated that you don't even know if you broke the law? That's why this was written this way. It was written very simply so that we know that you have the freedom of speech. We don't need to embellish on that. We don't need to say that it's during certain times or no, you have that period. And so this, this constitution was written very, very simply. It, it's simple words. It's, it's not hard to follow. Uh, so that anybody can can understand what what their rights are. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely agree. And and doing doing law work myself, I mean, you you can absolutely see how the the justices' opinions are. They're 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 more vague than they have to be, and that's on purpose. You yeah. know, you know, it's on purpose. They use a lot of double negatives, which which confuses you as they put the double negatives in. You're not sure, you know, exactly what they're talking about. They, they do that because the reality is, is that 
most of this would just require simply yes or no. Yes or no. I mean, it, it, they don't need any more. So if you've got to write 20 pages in order to explain the reason why, you know, it is what it is, then my hunch is, is that you're trying to convince people, you know, that, that, that your way is right, you know, and, and try to convince people that it's not the, the way it's meant to be. Amendment 1, proposed 25th of September 1789, ratified the 15th of December 1791. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Yeah, so the first part there, the establishment of religion. You know, there's this, uh, there's this doctrine of separation of church and state. And I think we need to understand where that comes from, okay? The, the Constitution doesn't actually say that you need a separation of church and state. That was actually created, uh, that was a doctrine that was created by the Supreme Court uh, it was the result of a letter that was written by, um, by Thomas Jefferson. It was written to the Baptist uh, Organization of America, and they were asking to establish baptism as the religion of America. And uh, Thomas Jefferson said, no, no, we can't do that. We're not, we're not one, you know, one religion. We're all religions. We, we're bringing in all these different people from all, from all around the world that are the downtrodden, the oppressed, and so on, and, and we're going to give them a place to, to live. And so as doing so, we need to be able to value each and every single individual and the uniqueness of every individual the beliefs of every individual. We didn't want a, a single religion. I mean, even if you don't have religion, that still is your right. And so there was a, a, a desire for separation of church and state, but we kind of forgot what it was. Now, let me explain a little bit better what, what, what it is. Is that, is that, what is a church? What is a church? Well, it's a place where a sinner goes to get healed, right? So if the place where a sinner goes to get healed would be, in our case, prisons, right? So that, that would be the place where we would go to get healed. That would be our church. And so there does need to be a separation of church and state because the state should not be the ones responsible for both being the judge and also for being the ones imprisoning people and, and healing them because those two things are in conflict with one, with one another. We need the judge to be a neutral, unbiased third party to act as that judge without having any sort of interest in one, way, one, one point or another. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have separation of church and state, but we need to understand what that actually means. And that means that, that the state should not be responsible for incarcerating these individuals and getting, you know, benefit, financial benefit as a result of these individuals being there. That should be, there should be the separation between those two. And that was more than anything what, what the doctrine was meant to be. But, you know, I, I think we've, we've taken it and, and gone a, a, you know, a different direction with it. You know, if, if we are governed as, as John, as, um, Thomas Paine says that our king is the law, right? That's what rules over us is the law. Then that would mean that, that, that the law is, is, is our Lord, is, is our ruler. And so when we say that we're going to take our ruler out of schools and out of, out of the justice system, and we're going to take it out of, you know, out of the courts and out of government, then we just took the Constitution out of everything. And then we kind of did. And, you know, the reality is, is that that's what the Supreme Court would want to do. So when the Supreme Court wants to take the Constitution out of all these things, so we don't know what the Constitution is, so we're not familiar with, with what our rights are and, and so on, that's something that the Supreme Court would want to have happen because they don't want the Constitution to, to win. I mean, if it did, then once again, they would all be out of a job. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you uh, – uh, one, one question that I have is that, 
is that why is it that when you go into a criminal proceeding, an adjudication of a crime, why is it that the document or the laws that guarantee your freedoms, you don't use that as a defense? Nobody ever talks about, about Constitution when you're going through the criminal adjudication process, although they're depriving you of liberty and life. Why would you not go to the originator of those, of those rights and use that as your basis for your argument? I mean, you know, if you brought constitutional law into, into, into an argument during the adjudication of a crime, they'd laugh you out the room because they don't, they don't care about the Constitution, you know, and they're willing, willing to, to deprive you of, of these rights here. So, you know, honestly, I, I believe that any, any criminal argument can be, can be argued with the Constitution and um, you can find wins. So when you look at the, at the separation of church and state, it's not actually doctrine that's founded within constitutional law. And, um, um, and uh, I actually, I actually think we need to bring the constitution back into, in, into our schools. We need to bring it back in because um, the constitution is, is, I mean, that's the guarantor. That's, that's our, that's what fights for us. We need to be able to speak these things and we need to, we need to know what they are. And um, as we drift away, um, you know, when you start speaking the truth back to these guys, they get pretty, they get pretty pissed off at you. They don't, they don't like what you have to say. Well, well, that's what, that's what I don't understand. Like this, this is this article, this bill, this, this constitution, right? This document is our, everything as American citizens. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why is this not the first thing that we're taught in school? Because everything branches from that. The separation of church and state. By, by doing the separation of church and state, they've, they've eliminated this from, from, from government. I mean, there isn't a constitution found within the courtrooms. There is, you, don't, you don't speak constitution. You know, that's why. That's what, why would be the, what would be the purpose, Tanawa, of, of, of making your citizens ignorant of the rights that they have? What would be the purpose of that? To be able to enslave them uh, through ignorance. To be able to imprison them through ignorance, to be able to deprive them of the rights, so that government can uh, can uh, expand. You know, there's uh, Thomas Jefferson. He once said that uh, uh, he said that um, that when the people fear government, there's liberty, uh, but when the government fears the people, there's or sorry that when the people or when the uh, government fears the people, there's liberty, but when the people fear government, there's tyranny. And so right. he was making the argument that uh, that this is the basis for. For the Second Amendment, for the freedom of to bear arms. So what he was saying was that you know the freedom to bear arms was uh, a last resort as against um, tyranny and government. So you know when we when we talk about that, that that the government wants to take away our liberty. They they want to get bigger and bigger. I mean, this is an animal that that will never get enough until every single man, man, child, and, and woman is is enslaved. Mm -hmm. I mean, until every single dollar is 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 spent on them and given to them. They're not going to have enough. And so, you know, government is always going to be seeking to deprive us of, of rights and freedoms because the freedoms are against government. You know, it's, it's the absence of freedom that allows for the, the growth of government. So, you know, with every single, every single act of legislation, we lose a little bit more of our freedom, you know. And so when we have these volumes and volumes and volumes of law that's been established through acts and everything else, then, you know, we lose our freedom. And so you got to look at the different types of law. Once again, I think that when you look at a, a juris doctorate, that is the adjudication of a crime. It's, it's someone that deals with the adjudication process. So the process of making a person into a slave or a criminal. So, you know, with every law, law is just simply the absence or the establishment of an obligation. And with an obligation, you lose your rights or you lose your freedoms. 
So freedom is really the ability to choose on your own. It's not necessarily the freedom to do whatever you want. It's the, uh, the freedom to be able to make the choice for yourself and for your family. Mm-hmm. And so with every single law that's created, we lose the freedom to be able to choose on our own. And so, you know, laws are actually the, uh, the, um, the um, elimination or the, or the negation of, of freedom. And so then uh, the re- restoration of freedom would be the opposite. It would be the, um, the removal of laws or the, the, the establishment of, of laws that are unconstitutional and in violation of, you know, the supreme law of land. And so that's what I do. That's what the substantive law is, is it's determining what is or is not a crime and what is or is not unconstitutional and legal. So, you know, we, we work to restore the freedom by taking away the laws. And there's just not very many of us because there's no, there's no money in this job because, you know, our clients don't, don't have money. So, you know, we're here for a, a higher purpose. How do, we, the, how do we get the constitution back into our schools? We got to do it ourselves. This is, this is our constitution. This is our land. This is our, these are our laws. We established this. So <clears throat> if you look at it like it's a contract, because that's all this is, once again, we the people came together and we the people decided that we wanted these, these rights and these freedoms. So once again, going back to, this, to the social compact, how it worked was, was that we came together as the people. We said, I want to, I want to have the right to live. Right. And so therefore, we all gave up our right to be able to kill because in the natural state of man, we have the right to kill, but we don't have the right to, to live. So we gave up our right to kill in order to give ourselves the right, all of us, the right to live. And so that established the law. And as the laws got so complicated and, and, the, and, the, and the social compact got bigger and bigger, we decided, well, we need someone there. We need an entity there to be able to oversee this. And so that's where government arised. So government arose simply on the on the for the purpose of guaranteeing those rights that were not given up within the social compact so government had the right to protect our life and our liberty and our property those were those were three things they have the the obligation to protect each one of those enumerated rights within the bill of rights and so that's the sole purpose of government it's not all these other things that they're involved in the purpose of government is to protect the the rights of the minority from the majority and those judges were there to be the defenders of liberty they were there to protect the minority from the uh the tyranny of the majority so um so in order to bring this back we all have to understand that that every single time we take a right away from one person we just took it away from all persons so even these prosecutors that are sitting there they're they're looking at this person saying i'm going to take this right away from this person they need to think in their own mind that as they do this they just lost that right themselves and so did their children you know and is this really the, the, the direction we want to go i mean i don't think that anyone would want to lose their rights to uh, freedom of speech. You know, it just happens, you know, like the famous philosophy once Nietzsche once said, he said, you know, that those who fight monsters should see to it that in the process, they don't become a monster. Mm-hmm. Well, justice has become a monster. It's become a monster in the process because we haven't been holding them accountable for their acts of deprivation. And the only way to do that is, you know, one, one violation at a time. We've got to fight back. Well, it's, it's kind of like the, the, and I, I I always love using this this analogy, but the the frog in the hot water, you know, if if you if you throw a toad in boiling hot water, he's going to jump right back out. But if you put him in cool water and then turn the temperature on slowly, he'll boil to death and won't even know it. And this is what has happened to us as American citizens is that they've handed us censorship on on a golden platter, right? And how they've done that is is through uh, social media things of that nature to where we get in the habit of instantly blocking people when we don't like what they hear, just shutting people down and blocking people and not wanting to hear because it, it, it struck us emotionally. And 
we've became a cancer culture now because of that. Now it's whenever somebody's saying that we don't like, we, we over talk them, we hang the phone up on them. We shut the door in their face. We just, we just try to block them. Right. You know, and again, I, I feel that these things have been implemented and put in place to slowly boil us to death. Absolutely. And the freedom of speech is, is probably, probably one of the most, if not the most important, uh, um, freedoms that we have because without the freedom of speech we can't express ourselves we can't be human you know we can't get our point across we can't hold government accountable for for their for their actions the freedom of speech is is so important that it, it functions in in every one of these rights you know i mean it's all about expressing ourselves and being unique and and, and offering you know our debate so you know in 2010 there was a case by the supreme court and i don't remember the case specifically i believe it was mcdonald but i don't remember Anyway, in 2010, it was a unanimous court decision, and what they said was that they said um, they said that uh, uh, they said the government cannot censor public debate, and nor can it hinder or obstruct free speech in order to control the narrative. This is a First Amendment violation of the most basic sort. That was written by Justice Kennedy, and so when you think about the government, you know they cannot hinder or obstruct free speech in order to control the narrative, and yet. That's what we have every single day in these plea bargain systems, in these in this justice system where 96% or 97% of the convictions come by way of plea bargain. And like I said, that's an egregious failure of the justice system because that's 97% of all defendants that don't even get to tell their side of the story, right? That's government controlling the speech in order to control the narrative. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, when you look at like, at like the um, uh, witness intimidation or witness tampering laws, it says that, that no person can be, um, can be a, uh, uh, can have their uh, their speech hindered or can have testimony freely, fully, and truthfully uh, committed to a court for any matter pending before the court. So you can't have your speech hindered either. You are to be given freely, fully, and truthfully the ability to speak on behalf of any matter that pends before the court. So when they prevent you from being able to do it or or they pay you to do it, because that's why it says freely, you are to be given it freely, that when uh, when you hire, you know, a uh, um, a um, someone uh, from the outside to come in and and uh, and and uh, and speak on your behalf, or the the state do does, then that's not offering that freely. It's actually offering it at a cost. So you know, that's why I have such a problem with with all of these uh, cases of uh, of uh, um, drug cases where they're where they're hiring individuals to come in and um, and frame the the individuals to catch them in the act. So um, anyway, let me you, ask you. Let me ask you this with the, on the topic of plea bargains, you know, because I was thinking about about, you know, all that we've talked about surrounding the plea bargains. And how do you suggest how do you suggest a situation is handled where an, an, an individual is guilty and, you know, there's they, they don't want to go to trial for the sake of the victims, because we always have to think about the victims as well and the trauma that they've been through. And, and the trauma that they go through and having to relive that trauma through a trial procedure when an individual is clearly guilty. Right. So, I mean, I thought about that as well, but, you know, let me just, let me just say that if I could sum up everything I'm trying to do, it's this. In, in one paragraph, it would be this. I'm not trying to change the laws. Rather, I'm pointing out what the laws state. And that the ways in which they're being enforced directly contradict with what is specified. Therefore, I'm not trying to change laws. Rather, I'm asking that we uphold them. If the laws state that something will be done in a certain way, we must follow that way. 
Laws do not change arbitrarily. That's tyranny. Constitutionalism demands that the laws evolve only through suffrage. Therefore, it's up to the people to decide whether or not the Constitution applies to them and not a judge or a state. Now, the reason why I say that is because, is because by opening the door and doing something different than, than what we have on the books, by saying that, that, all, that the trial of all crimes, with the exception of impeachment, shall be by jury, and the trial shall occur in the state in which the crime is said to have been committed, nowhere in that does it say that we can adjudicate, adjudicate a crime a different way. So if we choose to do something different, then that's in violation of laws. So today, plea bargains are in violation of laws. There's no, there's no denying that, that, that it was supposed to have been by jury. It's stated both there as well as also in the, the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. So we know that the that, that trial by jury is supposed to occur. But the problem is, is that as soon as we open up that door and we say, well, we can do it this other way, we either have to have it written in the books before we do it, because otherwise it's an ex post facto law, right? Or we're simply opening up the door and, and we're allowing for what's already occurred. So if we open up the door and we say, this person can come and we'll give him the ability to, to be guilty and be found guilty in a way other than the law prescribes, then we're just allowing for this to, to occur again down the road. You know, so, so once you open up that door to the, to the prosecutors and you allow a little bit of, of leeway, then eventually over time, that, that doorway will get bigger and bigger and bigger, in which case we're in the situation we are today. Well, I'm sitting there so, thinking, you know, an, an admittance of guilt is not a plea bargain. You know, you, you have to go through the admittance of guilt or not guilty process. That has nothing to do with the plea bargain. So I guess, I guess in that process, that judicial process, when you're brought in, you know, you're, you're asked, how do you plea, you know, guilty or not guilty. So I guess you would still have that process. Yeah. And so, and, and, and so, you should, and you should still be sentenced. Like say, if I, if I go in and I plead guilty, if I go in and I tell the judge I'm guilty of this crime, right. Then I, I get what you're saying. I, I, I can actually see that working without a plea bargain deal at all, because you go in and you admit your guilt and you're still punishable by the same sentence as if I would, if, if I was to go to trial and lose. The only thing is, is I'm just not, I'm, I'm saving the taxpayers money and the, the, the victim's grief just by admitting, admitting guilt, but I'm getting the same sentence as if I was to go to trial and lose. That's how it should be. Yeah. And, and I, I would agree with that. You know, I, I, I do think that it's, that it's, that it's a good thing when people want to admit that they've been wrong, that they've done wrong. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to discourage that at all, but you know, the, the one thing that I do want to say is that, is that we have laws and those laws are, are they're, they're reduced to writing. And if they're reduced to writing, then, then what purpose would they be reduced to writing, but for, to prevent those that are, that are enforcing them to be able to follow them. You know, so if, if the laws being reduced to writing, if they're able to be at discretion of the individual or the right to be able to violate them would be of equal uh, of equal uh, requirement as to following them, then of course the laws have no have no validity. You know we have the laws and they're in written form, and we need to follow them in written form. Otherwise, we're not a government of laws; we're a government of of, of arbitrary rule of man. Right. And that's where we're at today. Is we are under the rule of arbitrary man, we're under the rule of law. And so, you know, I have no problem personally. I, you know, I, I'm not America. There's a lot of voters out there. If we want to change the laws, that's what we can do. We can do that. We can change the laws to whatever we want. I'm simply pointing out this is what the laws state and that we need to follow that until such time as, as, as the people have just made the decision to change it. But, yeah, I would agree that, that it's OK, you know, to, to admit you're, that you're guilty. I think that it's that that's a great thing to do. And I think that that, that that's admirable. Um, you know, when you do wrong, you, you admit to it. But the thing is, is that is that there's going to be a change in, in what we're doing, um, you know, in the end. I mean, once this is all said and done, 
um, and, and we move forward with the new justice system, it's not going to be about, about vengeance. It's not going to be about paying for the things that you've done because right. paying for the things that you've done, it puts you into debt. It's going to be about compassion. It's going to be about healing this individual and, and, and bringing them to a place where they can find healing so that they can go out and not hurt anymore, therefore not hurt other, other individuals. We're going to change the whole image of justice. And so, well, well, that's you know, exactly it, because I think what you're trying to say is that the law favors those that plead guilty versus those that that don't plead guilty. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's and it shouldn't be. I mean, I, I should not be pressured or feel any kind of way to accept something. That goes against my fundamental right, my constitutional right. right. You know what I mean? And, and I experienced that, of course, with my case, I was punished for going to trial and 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 i was i the pressure that was on me to not go to trial i mean they're sending they're sending family members at me they're they're sending whoever they could to try to talk me out of going to trial which only at the time and and emboldened me you know it, it gave me more courage to go to trial because i'm sitting there thinking man if they don't want me to go to trial they really don't have anything on me no no yeah. but they but they use that, that fear and intimidation to lock you up and and, and keep you there all those deprivation tactics or are employed in order to get you in absolutely. a position where you will be willing to plead guilty so absolutely you know, they the, did. the issue is is not necessarily the plea bargain it's the abuse of process it's the abuse of power that they use in order to force you into doing what they want to do in order to control the narrative in order to win the case without any sort of consideration as to what is truth or not truth or what i'll is, share what i'll share another true. quick story real quick where uh there was an incident this is this is one of the the first crimes that I got as an adult, there was an incident with a female and um, it was a female that had a crush on me and she wanted, you know, to, to have her way with me. And I just didn't have anything to do with her, but we worked together at a pizza shop, you know, that stayed open late. So long story short, um, we're working one night. It's just her and I, and she wanted to close the shop down and go do whatever she wanted to go do. She called the boss. The boss said, no, stay open. Five minutes later, Right. I'm outside in the car. She comes outside, says the boss says, close down. And I ask, you know, well, I hope you clean up. She says, no, I got it. I leave. Go to my girlfriend's house for the night. Well. She um, she calls the police, says that I tried to rape her and held a knife to her, all kinds of crazy stuff. Right now, I don't know any of this. I'm at my girlfriend's house. I go home and about seven o'clock in the morning, my father's sitting at the table. So I, I automatically, I'm like, dad, what's going on? He's like, some detectives came by here last night looking for you saying, you know, some, some pretty horrendous things, but they said that they would come back. You know, I told him, I said, I have no idea. I was at my girlfriend's house. You know, nothing happened that I know of, you know, I wouldn't in no incidents or nothing like that. But the point of the story is the detectives came back and they, they completely acted like they didn't believe the story at all. The story was a complete farce. You know what I mean? Which was proven. Her story. Her story, her story okay. which was proven at trial. I went to trial and her story was just completely fabricated. We even had the paramedics came in and, and it was just a whole fabricated story. It was just a, a, one of these stories of a, of a crush, right? Yeah. One of these, these crushes. So, but the detectives are sitting right there at the table with my father and I, and they're telling us like, this girl's out of her mind. We don't believe anything that this girl says, but we have to get a statement from you of what happened, you know, and, and, um, and so we can close the case, you know, but we have to get yeah. your statement. 
Right. This is what they told me. Yeah. So that night, her and I, we were fooling around, you know, just jeffing around in the in the in the place or whatnot. And she held a knife up to my stomach, and she's like, you know, you're gonna f me tonight. And and I kind of smacked her hand, and and the knife went flying. I told her to quit playing, but that was about the extent. We were both just playing around, but I didn't know she had ulterior motives. Yeah. Right. Right. She's setting me up that whole time, and I had no idea. I'm just cooling, you know. So the detectives, they told us that and they're like, yeah, you know, we don't believe anything. Just sign this thing here. So I tell them exactly that, man. We were just joking around and blah, blah, blah. As soon as I signed it, they slammed the cuffs on me, arrested me for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Yeah. Right. After they sat there and looked my father in his face and told him that they were not going to arrest me. They still went forward. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that charge has has lingered with me all through prison through it has plagued me through my life even though even though tana while i went to trial and and won i beat the charge at trial right it still followed me through prison you know i um there's 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 incorrect knowledge base or or education within the within the courtroom um you know the prosecutor is the highest law enforcement officer you know, in the county, it's, that's mm-hmm. what they're meant to be, you know, so they're there to enforce the law. They are under the executive branch. And so, you know, when you look at the education that these prosecutors have, it's the wrong education. You know, they don't know the elements of a crime. They don't know, you know, that the, 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 those three elements, the criminal even they, they're not looking at it from that perspective. You know, I, uh, their education is literally to find you guilty, to, to make you a criminal. And so, you know, they're not taking into account these, these, the elements of the crime to determine whether or not the crimes even been committed. They just take this information and they, you know, and they'll charge you based upon the information that they receive and, and they'll overcharge you. They, they do those things because they don't understand crime. They don't understand how crime works. They understand the education, how to make a criminal, but they don't understand, you know, the process of, of, of a crime. And I think that, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of cases would not go anywhere near trial if we actually had someone that was there to look at the investigation and, and to look at the elements of the crime and to say, you know what, this person didn't have mens rea. He didn't have a guilty mind because right. of these elements, you know, whatever. And so I just, I know that, that, that we could have a far less workload. It, it doesn't have to be the way it is today. If one, we didn't, we didn't criminalize every single thing, you know, and two, we actually cared about the individuals enough to, you know, to want to help. So there's lots of cases where we can help the people as opposed to harm them. And then three, you know, actually considered the, the investigation and, and proceeded based upon, you know, what is or is not criminal behavior and, you know, what is a crime? I think that a lot of things, you know, would, would change. But the other thing is, is that a lot of these crimes that we're seeing today are not crimes by, uh, by a person. These are crimes against government, you know. So, um, you know, a great example would be, you know, be a, a drug offense. You know, if I have drugs on me and this, this is the reason why they actually went and, and decided to remove the grand jury, you know, long ago. I understand the, the rationale behind it, but government has to be, has to be sovereign immune, right? They, they claim sovereign immunity. And if so, they can't be the accuser. They can't be, right? And the constitution says so in article three, in all cases, which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. The state can't be your accuser. There has to be the right to confront your accuser. So what happens is, is that if I get, if I get pulled over and I get searched, you know, and let's just say that it was a completely legal and lawful search, and they search me and they find drugs on me, who becomes the accuser? Well, that law enforcement officer would have to be the accuser, right? 
but he can't be because he's an agent of the state. So what they had to do is they had to create a new accuser, which was information. And they said, here, this information is now accusing you of a crime because it can't be the state doing it. And as a result, there came information as the, uh, as the accuser. And that's why these states are all using this information. But the problem is you can't put that information on a stand and cross-examine it. You can't do it. So your right to confront your accusers completely evaporates the moment that they prosecute you with information only. And that's why, you know, like here in the state of Washington, when they get information, that if that person decides, like in my, the case of my wife or my ex-wife, she decided that she wasn't going to, that she, nothing happened. She, she didn't want to, to proceed with these charges. And the state said, too bad. We already have your information. We're going to go ahead and proceed with this case anyway. And so then my accuser became, of course, the government. And that was the reason why government says I can't confront the accusation. And as a result, I can't win a case because I cannot confront the accusation. So that information itself, when they receive that information, they just simply say, oh, this is valid. It's truth. And the moment is truth. You can't confront it. You can't challenge it. You can't, you can't refute it. And as a result, you have no choice. You, you are already guilty in the eyes of, 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 the, of the law. So, um, you know, that's, that's really what's, what's happening. And so uh, another thing, you know, that just to go with, with what you were talking about there, because I've heard that a lot. I mean, that very similar thing. Um, that's actually in the Bible. That was Joseph, you know, and what happened to him. But, uh, you know, the central meaning of procedural due process is that, is that the parties whose rights are being affected, that they are entitled to be heard in order, in order to be able to do that they, and enjoy that right. They first have to be notified. And so when we go back to the grand jury where, you know, for instance, you weren't even notified that there was a grand jury being done, right? You had the right to be heard. I mean, that's a central element of a procedural due process is that if your rights are to be infringed, you have the right to be heard. And this goes back to freedom of speech. I mean, your freedom of speech, you have the right to be there. You had the right to be there all along. And that mm -hmm. goes back to a case called Hurtado versus California from 1887. Now, in Hurtado versus California, they actually called out the specific elements of a, of a grand jury. They said that, that the accused is present and that he has the right to, uh, to uh, be represented by, uh, by an attorney. That he has the right to speak and he has the right to confront the accusations. He has the right to call witnesses and cross-examine all of these were rights that were specifically identified. And, and I couldn't even, and I couldn't even get my jury. I still, to this day, I've never seen my grand jury right. transcripts. Right. Never. And so you have, you have a freedom of speech issue that's occurring because government is controlling the narrative. They are saying that my client, the state's client can come and can present their accusation, but the state's opposition can't come and confront the accusation. You know, they're controlling the narrative. They're, they're saying whatever they want, and they're preventing you as a party in the cause from being able to participate in the cause, which is, guess what? That's obstruction of justice, punishable by 10 years in prison every single time that they don't notify the opposing party of the, uh, of the, of the cause. That's you know, right. And so when they notify one party, but they prevent the other party from participating and attending in order to prevent that party from being able to, to, to speak or be able to present their case in the act and confront the accusation, that's actually obstruction of justice, and it's punishable by well, it's under uh, Title uh, Title eighteen two four one. It seems to me that that men's uh, you know men's rea should be like in the grand jury process. To me, that yeah, the, but to me that's what makes sense is is that you you're brought into this grand jury. the The state is is a, is making its accusation against you. And it has to provide at that time the mens rea of that that accusation. Right. You know, they right. have to show that you knew that you were committing a crime. Right. So, you know, the point of the grand jury 
is so there's all three all three bodies of of, of or branches of government is represented within the court of law. You have the judicial branch being the judge. You have the executive branch being the prosecutor, and you have the legislative branch being the jury, right? And that jury is there to represent the people. So anytime you have a debt or anytime you, you tax uh, um, someone, taxes can only come from the people. It has to come from the legislative branch. The other two branches of government don't have the right to create a debt against the people. And so when you look at, at the process, you know, that is the purpose of the grand jury is to is to act as, as the sovereign. So you know, we are sovereign. I think we've already we've already identified that that we are the ones that create the laws, and therefore, in order for a sovereign to be uh, to be billed for a crime, they have to consent. They have to consent to it. So that's the purpose of those jurors to be in there is to determine whether or not, as the sovereign, we're going to give consent for you to proceed with this charge against this individual. That that's that's their purpose. We are the ones that make the determination as to whether or not there's a debt that's owed to society. Absent that, and the debt is fraudulent. It's not valid. Because the executive branch and the judicial branch do not have legal authority to create debt against the people. That is the sole duty of the legislative branch. So all of these, all these cases where, where, the, where the, the purpose and the function of the grand jury has been, has been um, circumvented, they're not legal. Those are, that's fraudulent debt. It's fraudulent debt under the Constitution of the United States because it was not, the process wasn't followed. You know, the, the sovereign has to be the one to, to to give the consent, and that comes through the, the, the jury. Absent the jury or absent the proper process of the jury, then, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got fraudulent debt. It's not real. And so that's why, you know, when everybody says, well, why is it that I keep paying for this debt? The reason why is because it was fraudulent to begin with. Right. If it's fraudulent, they can bill you over and over. You'll never get rid of the debt because it's not even valid, you know? So think about it. Either A, you've got nine states that don't even have a grand jury at all, which outright he says, okay, that's not valid at all. But then you have a process issue, right? Where the rest of the states, they say, we're not going to allow the, the accused to be able to come and confront the accusations against him, right? That's an equal protection issue because the state is deciding to go ahead and allow this side of the argument, their own, their own clients to come and present their side of the argument. But guess what? Their, their opposition does not get to come in. If you were being treated as though you're innocent until proven guilty, you would be there in that, in that grand jury presenting your, your, your counter argument and defending yourself. Because guess what? The central meaning of any procedural due process is that the parties whose rights are to be affected are entitled to be heard. And if you're not heard because you were not notified, guess what? That's a violation of due process. That's the most fundamental violation that there is. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, yeah. Well, Tanner, while this has been another great, great episode, man, impactful, powerful. Again, these are our First Amendment rights uh, here. You know, this evening we discussed just the importance of, of being able to express your opinion, express your thoughts, and just to be able to speak about what you feel is right or wrong. You know, because we're all American citizens. We all live here. We all have to deal with the same stuff. And we should all have the same opinion for it. And as far as it comes for our judicial system, the same applies. I shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't be punished for going to trial and I shouldn't be coerced to, to take a plea deal. Right. You know, it's, it's, I'm the one that's accused, you right. know, I should have the choice of, of how I want to face that accusation, you know, yeah. and it's yeah, just and not I that way anymore. I think that the most basic thing that everybody understands is that you cannot be punished for having rights or for exercising rights. So when they say to you that either you plead guilty and accept whatever punishment this is, 
or else if you take it to trial and you exercise your right to speak and defend yourself, we're going to punish you three or four times more than this. That is not that is being punished for exercising constitutional right. And you can't do that. You know what my options were? This is what when I sat in the office with the DEA, I was in the office with the the, the lead agent, uh, Timothy Lutz for the FBI DEA. Um, Pamela Marsh was my U.S. district attorney uh, prosecutor, um, some customs agent and a couple other uh, dickheads, you know, and they're all sitting in this in this office. And my options were this. Right. I could cooperate with them, tell them everything I know. I have to wear a wiretap and go set people up, um, point out drug spots, all of this stuff. You know, that was option one. Option two was go to trial. And I was facing 10 to life. And they told me that if I went to trial and lost, that they were going to do everything in their power to make sure that I got life. This is what they told me. Right. Or I could take what is called an open plea which is just me going in and admitting guilt, not cooperating, just admitting guilt. And I'm open for the court's discretion to be sentenced, you know, and um, of course I give up all my constitutional rights. This is one thing about a plea deal. If you accept the plea deal, you give up all your constitutional rights on appeal. Even if they come with, with a new, uh, you know, some watershed constitutional amendment that that can free you. If you took a plea, you're out of gas. That's actually yeah. not true. So, so under under Civil Rule sixty B four, sixty B four is specifically uh, for a void judgment. So judgments are either valid or void. There's a, there's only two ways. They're either valid or void. A void judgment is only void when the court rendering the decision lacks either subject matter jurisdiction or personal jurisdiction. If they lack either one of those, then it's a void judgment, right? And a void judgment is always and forever void. It's, it, it's never valid. So anytime that a court renders a decision in a case where it lacks jurisdiction, either subject matter or personal, then that, that decision that's, that's made is non-binding on all parties. It's non-binding because it's, it's void. So that particular court exceeded the power or authority statutory conferred upon it by the Constitution when it rendered a decision in a case which it lacked personal jurisdiction or subject matter jurisdiction. So in the case of, of state of state convictions, and I haven't breached, you know, federal yet, that, that's down the road, but I, I have an argument for it. But in the state, in the case of states, when states choose to become a party in the cause, that is in fact a violation of the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, which says that in all cases in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction, which means that personal jurisdiction is specifically given to the United States Supreme Court in all cases in which a state became a party. And as a result, that decision that the state rendered, it, be it plea bargain or otherwise, it is unconstitutional because the state became a party. And that means that the state no longer has personal jurisdiction. And as a result, it is a void judgment. And in the case of Civil Rule 60B4, in all cases in which there's a void judgment, that, that judgment is always and forever void. You can appeal to that uh, 20 years down the road. There is no time limit for appealing a void judgment. But that's only under Civil Rule 60B4. There's mm -hmm. other ones like, like misconduct that would that only has a year and appeal for other cases for procedural a year. But in the case of before where it's a void judgment, you're it's always and forever void. And you can appeal that at any point in time. You simply petition the uh, the court rendering the decision that, that uh, for a motion to vacate judgment based upon the absence of uh, personal jurisdiction. Now, that's where I'm going with this. That, that's where I'm taking taking this to Supreme Court. And that's where I'm fighting on behalf of everybody is that these these judgments are, are unconstitutional. The state doesn't have jurisdiction in a case where it, it chose to become a party. And um, so um, 
and yeah, and we, we don't and we don't know that you know we don't know this stuff when we're sitting in there with these agents no. and in that no. office and and all of, we don't know that a rule 60b until we get way down the road and we've exhausted all our remedies and we're like okay how do i get back into the court well you can get back in this way this is how we learn this stuff right. but when we're sitting in there and they they can tell us whatever they want to tell us and you believe them because these this is the the united states federal government right you know yeah so, you know, my, my question in your case is who is the buffer between you and the law there, there is no buffer how can it's supposed to be my attorney your, your your attorney works for works for the federal government you know they're representing the federal government you so know what my attorney told me after all that after after they read that to me he looked at me and told me he, he looked at me, he, he raised his hands, like, you know, shrugged his hands. He said, well, tell him what you know. <laughs> That's what he told. This was my, this was a public defender. This was, you know, uh, well, in the feds, you don't get public defenders. In the federal system, you know, you get actual pro bono, you know, pro bono attorneys or whatever, but it's still the same. Yeah. You know, it's well, still the same. You know, so, so according to Thomas Jefferson, the purpose of the states were to act as an essential buffer between the central government and the people. You know, they were to be the, the neutral, unbiased third party. And, and to do so, the laws were supposed to be coming from the central government. So the accuser wasn't supposed to be a state. The accuser was supposed to be the United States of America accusing me of, of crime X, whatever it is. You know, and that way, every single person across the United States would all be treated equally because the central government, that's the way federalism works, is that the federal government makes the laws in the central government and then they federate them out to all the regional governments for administration that way all the laws are all the same you know when you start to deal with states rights and states laws that's actually that's actually the the confederacy that's that's how that's designed is that they're all sovereign they all have their own laws and they're able to uh, uh, um, rule the people whatever way they want that's how it was was back in the beginning and we never changed into a true federal republic because a true federal republic says that the laws are made by the central government and that's why the Constitution says in Article 1, it says all legislative power shall be vested in a Congress of the United States consisting of a House and a Senate. You know, all laws were supposed to be made by them. Then they would federate them out to all the regional governments for implementation. And then the accuser then would be the United States of America accusing you of crime, whatever. And then the judge not being subject to the United States of America and not being subject to you would then be able to act in a neutral, unbiased third, uh, third party in a manner that is, is neutral. We would have the states being able to investigate the crime without having to work on behalf of the master of the state becoming your accuser. You know, I mean, that's the way that the system was designed to be. And, you know, how we got so far away from that, I, I don't know. But, but when you have the laws that are made by the state and then you have a state that's the judge, you have the state that's the accuser, you have the state that's the investigator, you have the state that's the beneficiary of the labor that's extracted from the person once they're brought in, you know, into the system, then there is no buffer. There's nothing protecting the individual. That's why the Constitution says that whenever there's a state that's named a party, the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction because this, the, the founders and framers of the Constitution knew that this would happen. And so they identified a neutral, unbiased third party. And the only one that they, would, that, they would, that they interpreted as being able to be in that position was the United States Supreme Court. They couldn't use the district courts because those judges arise up out of the state. So they would still have state prejudices and, and tendencies and, and, and things of that sort. But by making the Supreme Court the neutral and biased third party, now we have a buffer that can act in that, in that capacity. So it, it works both ways. Like in the federal system, there is no capacity. There is no buffer. But there is, actually, because Article 3 says the trial of all crimes, with the exception of impeachment, shall be by jury, and the trial shall occur in the state where in which the crime is said to be committed. The state mm -hmm. was supposed to be your buffer. They were mm -hmm. supposed to be the judge. 
you know, the United States of America accused me of a crime, the state be, is the buffer. They're the neutral right. and biased third party. That's the way it was supposed to be. And it's the, the state, state is my protector, the state, right. Right. And so you were supposed to have the state be your, be the judge and the, and the defender, and they would act as the buffer between the central government and the individual. And if, and, and therefore it works the same way as if the state is the, becomes the accuser, you know, like the, like the United States of America was in your case, then they would bring in a new buffer. And that new buffer, according to the constitution was the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're, we're so far off of, well, we're so far, we're so far off of it. It's, it's, you have, you'll have the federal government indict you and then you'll have the state come right behind the federal government and charge you for the same crime and lock you up twice for the same crime right there's no difference between state and state laws or state uh citizenship and federal citizenship but yet they've split it apart that actually comes from the dred scott case yep why is it that we're still experiencing dred scott over and over again why yep. is that we're still experiencing baron versus baltimore over and over and over again because that was never removed from american jurisprudence they're still citing Dred no, Scott. No, because they're still making money off it. Exactly. They're still so, making money off it. So if the root is bad, we got to pull the root out because all of the fruit produced from that root all, will always be bad. So when we have Barron versus Baltimore, that back in 1833, the Supreme Court says, guess what? You don't get the rights identified within the Bill of Rights. You don't get them. And then today, that is still standing Supreme Court doctrine. That decision flowed out to every single one of the regional courts, every one of them. So from that moment forward, until Barron versus Baltimore is completely removed and all of the progeny coming from it, and the court puts into place to all the regional courts, right, if they put into place a new precedent that, that allows for the correct application of the law, until that happens, every single case is unconstitutional because they derive from an unconstitutional ruling from the highest court in the land. I mean, it's as simple as that. Tanawa, thank, thank you for your time. Um, happy New Year, man! And like you, like like we discussed at the at the top, you know, it's it's going to be a great year, man. I really feel it is. Yeah. Um, we've 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 weathered the storm, partner. You know, we've weathered the storm, and um, tipping point. We're past the tipping point. It's we're past the tipping point. You know, and yeah. and it's I you know I think that the skies are just starting to clear for us now. So it's just making the right choices from this point on you know, and just being our best selves and, and, and putting love first and, and knowing that's going to be returned to us. So until next week, my friend, the second amendment, I know people are waiting on that. We're going to get into guns and we're going to get into more stuff. So tune in. Thank you once again and uh, take care partner. See you next year. God bless. Thank you.